amen. Good morning. Good to be with you on this Labor Day weekend. Um, I am excited to talk about Acts chapter 2 today with you. So find it in your Bible, because what happens in Acts chapter 2, as I look out on you, um, outside of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't know that there is anything in Scripture that has more significantly impacted you and I and the daily spiritual lives that we lead than what happens in Acts chapter 2. It's an extraordinary account of one of the most extraordinary events in all of human history. So find Acts chapter 2, uh, but I thought we'd start first with a joke. Of course, that's the best way to start a sermon. Uh, there's an old preacher's joke that honestly is not very good, um, but I'll tell it anyway. The old preacher's joke uh, that goes something like this. Uh, you kind of set it up with this. You know, it's like what Jesus said once, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will be a fight about worship music. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that joke was horrible, but some of y'all laughed. I love that. That sounds like maybe you've been involved in those fights uh, from time to time. Uh, so the joke takes this verse from Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus said this, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. And we often throw that out, like to comfort people, Jesus is with you, Jesus is present, but we change it, and instead of Jesus being present, what is present is conflict about music. Uh, does the joke feel funnier after I've explained it? My family says the same thing, but that doesn't help. But nevertheless, that's the point of the joke. And what's ironic, I think, about that is this passage, we often throw it out as a comforting thing. It's actually at the end of a spot where Jesus is explaining how to manage conflict between believers. Uh, and so it's ironic that we would use it in this joke, but I, I throw all that out just to point this out. If you are not aware, church conflict is a thing. Like if you're new to church, you're like, these people are great. They seem to all love each other. We do, but just wait. <laughs> church conflict is a part of this. And if uh, you're new to church, you may not be aware of this, but one of the things notoriously that we've had a lot of conflict about at churches is music, is what we're just doing here immersively at Pulver Rock. We haven't had a lot of conflict about this, but someone at some point coined the phrase worship wars to talk about this specific conflict because it happens so frequently. The question is just this, what's the best way for the people of God to gather in worship? Um, it doesn't feel like that should cause a fight, but hey, put that question to a vote and you'll split the church. A few years ago, I think this is how it started, uh, some Jesus-free kippy dude was like, hey, these hymns are okay, but we could write new songs about Jesus that sounded a lot more like what the kids are listening to these days. And that was like the advent of Christian music. And as soon as Christian music became a thing, uh, everyone collectively said, well, this is the worst. We should go back to those hymns because that's, after all, what Jesus sang, which is also not true. Um, <laughs> And that's the fight. Should we do the new stuff or should we do the old stuff? And it goes back and forth. We've been arguing about that for about 50 years, thus the unfunny joke. Here's what we have to understand about this argument, and it's going to connect to what we're going to read today. The argument about music is just the latest form of an argument that goes way back to the beginning. And the argument is over the question, when the people of God get together, what should we in fact do? 
What does God want us to do as we get together? Now, what we're going to look at today is going to maybe speak into that a little bit. We're going to hear the first sermon preached by someone other than Jesus. We're going to see like what those first church services look like. And it's not going to settle the argument, um, but I do think it's going to teach us a powerful principle that could settle the argument for us. The principle is just this, function and purpose is God-ordained, form is inspired by human creativity, right? So function and purpose, the the reason that we do things is God-ordained, but the form that it takes is inspired by the Holy Spirit through the lens of human creativity. And when we confuse those two, when we confuse form with function and purpose, then inevitably we fight about things that honestly Jesus just doesn't care about. Uh, And that's the risk that we run. The the form of things we do has to and does dramatically change through the years. There's not a church on this planet that is still worshiping in the way that we're going to read today in Acts chapter 2. At the very least, we're all speaking different languages. And that's a significant shift in form, right? Uh, So that is appropriate, though. It's what we would expect when the Holy Spirit inspires humans who are creative and were designed to be creative, we will get different forms. But we want to stay connected to the God-given purpose and function of what we do. So that's something we're going to be able to detangle a little bit today and maybe learn a little bit more about God's desire for us as we gather. So I want to walk through the entire chapter of Acts 2 because I think it's just that significant and it warrants uh, being read. Each uh, part of this chapter, I'm going to split it into three parts, is incredibly important. The first part uh, starts in verse 1, and Luke is just going to introduce to us what I would say is the hero of the book of Acts, really the hero of the rest of the New Testament at this point. It's not Peter, it's not one of the disciples or one of the apostles, it's not the Apostle Paul, it is the Holy Spirit who is the hero of the book, and we're going to follow the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the rest of the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 1, here is the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house they were sitting, uh, where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. All right, we'll pause right there. That's the end of part one. 
So Pentecost is the scene where this happens. Pentecost is an Old Testament feast. It's also called the Feast of Weeks, if you read that in the Old Testament. It falls 50 days after the Passover feast. And so to orient us a little bit, Passover feast is what Jesus is celebrating with his disciples at the Last Supper. This is 50 days from that Last Supper. The Last Supper was the night before he was crucified. Um, 50 days after that night, uh, or after the Passover celebration, all the God-fearing Jews would gather in Jerusalem and they would go to the temple uh, and the men would offer the first fruits of harvest in worship of God. This was one of the biggest celebrations in the calendar of the Hebrew people. So people would come from all over the world. And this is the moment where God chooses to introduce the Holy Spirit in a new way. Now the Holy Spirit has existed Right? And we even see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament at times. But this is a, a change. This is a shift. And from this point forward, the rest of the New Testament is about how the same Spirit that empowered and indwelt Jesus now is unleashed to indwell and empower everyone who puts faith in Jesus. That's the story. That's what the New Testament is ultimately about. It's the most dramatic shift possible. And while the Holy Spirit existed in the Old Testament, it did not uh, exist in this way. And there's all sorts of uh, moments in this account where Luke is pointing that out through what happens. Like think about Genesis 11. God scatters the people at the Tower of Babel and he confuses their languages and spreads them out all over the earth. Here, They come back together and God is somehow supernaturally unifying language again so that everyone can hear about God. Exodus 19, God brings the people to the foot of Mount Sinai and he tries to speak to them. He wants to give them the law and the people hear this rushing wind and they see this lightning on the mountain and they shrink back and they said, wow, God is really scary. Moses, you go. And so Moses goes by himself instead of the people. Here the opposite happens. The rushing wind and the fire, it returns. But instead of sending one person forward, God shows up for every person. And in a sense, what he's doing is he's writing his law upon their hearts, not on tablets of stone. Exodus, the symbol of God in the Old Testament was the pillar of fire by night, right? The pillar of fire was in the midst of the people. So everyone could look at it, right? Uh, But it was like its own thing. Here, something very different happens. The fire splits up and it rests on the head of every woman, every man, every child who has faith in Jesus. And so there's a shift here. This is not the old community of God. This is the new community of God made up of individuals in direct relationship with God. There's never been anything like this. Like God God has uh, indwelt people before in the Bible, but this is the moment where it is permanent and it is for everyone who has faith. Everyone becomes a prophet in this moment. Everyone becomes a priest in this moment. Everyone has direct access to God. It is the most stunning moment and there's a wildness to it and there is an equality to it that we should not miss. What gets me about this moment, um, you think about what's happening here from like a theological perspective. Also, at this same time, in another part of the city of Jerusalem, um, there were priests and there were Sanhedrin uh, who were in the temple and they were offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. Isn't that kind of a stunning contrast? 
Here's the presence of God descending. Meanwhile, at the same time, in this very ordered and systemized way, the the priests in the Sanhedrin are offering these sacrifices. The, The old system of worship of God was very ordered and very systematized. In the center was what was the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God's spirit was said to dwell. And you could almost even think of the temple as concentric circles. The outer ring of the temple, that was the place where women and Gentiles, that's as far as they could go. That's as close as they could get to the Holy Spirit uh, or to the Spirit of God or, or the presence of God. And then there's an inner court where men could go and that's where they would offer their priests during this or offer their sacrifices during this festival. And then there was even an inner ring beyond that where only like the qualified and trained people could go to be that close to God. Everyone had to stay in their place. Everyone had to respect the rules. You had to follow the system but there was no fire, right? Like the presence of God had left that system long ago. It wasn't there anymore. And so what happens in Acts 2 is that holy of holies that existed as this place that you can't get too close to, it breaks out and enters into human hearts who believe in Jesus. I mean, it's stunning in its implications. The system was over for good at this moment. God, from this point forward, was accessible to all people. In the most staggering way possible, every person who had faith in Jesus had as much access in that moment as the high priest of the nation had. And so I think part of what we have to let sink into our hearts about this is just the shift of what this means for us. I I would say it this way. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you have the most important thing you need to live the kingdom life. Nothing else is needed. And it's easy to think, well, you know, I'm not educated enough. You know, I'm not trained enough. I'm not eloquent enough or disciplined enough. All of that sort of thinking, and we all think that way at times, all of that is the old system thinking. That's how the old system was built. It was very ordered and systematized. In the new system, God says, it doesn't matter what else is true about you. If you have faith in Jesus, then my spirit indwells you. And that is enough for whatever you need. That is enough. The old system was built on qualifications and all of that sort of stuff. The new system is built on faith in Jesus and the presence of God and to prove that that is enough to us. What is going to happen in the next few pages, in the next few hundred years, is God is about to overturn the most dominant empire the world has ever known through 120 uneducated, untrained, ineloquent, undisciplined Jesus followers. All they had going for them was the Spirit was in them. And if you have faith in Jesus, that same Spirit lives in you. And what that means, I think, for us is that we need to never think of ourselves as inadequate in the kingdom again, because adequacy is no longer tied to competency and qualifications. It is tied solely to the presence of the Spirit of God in us. And if we have it, it is enough for whatever he calls us to do. Now, that amazing moment leads to the first sermon. And this is part two. This is the first sermon of kind of the new era of this community of Jesus followers. And I just want to read it in its entirety. It's not that long, but um, I, I want you to just picture for a second that you saw this scene with the rushing wind, you heard the voices in your language, and then someone stands up 
and preaches this. Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Pause for laughter. It's good to start with a joke. That's, <laughs> even if it's not funny, it's good. Yeah. He goes on. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my, spirit, uh, on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all out of Joel. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you'll not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You'll not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy uh, with joy in your presence. Peter continues, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is not for, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, it's the first recorded sermon by someone other than Jesus of this movement. I know what you're thinking. We all thinking the same thing. It's a little short, you know, right? Yeah, should be longer. That's why I preach longer is because give the people what they want, right? 
Let's observe something. This is a way that we could practice that principle that I introduced at the beginning. The form of the sermon is less important than the function and the purpose, okay? So there's a lot of things we might observe about the form of the sermon. He's pulling from a lot of Old Testament prophecy, from the Psalms, from the story of David. He's trying to illustrate a couple of things that were very important to him. That, that is less important, the form that it takes, than the function and the purpose behind this. Do you remember a few weeks ago, I told you the early church had a very tightly focused definition of orthodoxy. Now, what that means is that when they ask the question, what does it mean to be Christian? Like, what, what is, like, the hill that we're dying on, the, like, the, the core of what we believe, the way that they answered that was solely focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully human. His death and resurrection was fully sufficient for salvation and everything else. And that was the very focused core of the faith in the early church. They died on that hill alone, sometimes literally died on that hill. And you see in this sermon, those themes are starting to emerge. This is what Peter is trying to persuade people about, not just about general Christian living, but about Jesus in particular. If you had to summarize the main point of his sermon, he gives it to us this way. The Jesus you crucified was Lord and Messiah. That's, that's really the main point of the sermon. Lord meaning co-reigning with God, uh, authoritatively God, and Messiah meaning the promised Christ. So this is the human heir of David who would save the people from his sins. And he's saying, like, having faith in that person, the person of Jesus Christ, that is what this new community is going to be about. And for a little bit over 300 years of church history, they were very tightly focused on that. The things that they argued about and they defended, that it, it was the person of Jesus Christ. He was Lord, he was Messiah, who was fully sufficient for salvation and everything else. That's what Peter's talking about here. And then he gives this first ever altar call. The people are cut to the heart and he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, with that word repent, sometimes we fill in the blank in our mind that what he's saying is stop sinning. That's not exactly what the word means. The word is a turning word. He's saying turn to Jesus to receive forgiveness for your sins. And what's interesting about that moment is he says that because he notices the people have been cut to the heart is what Luke writes. They were convicted about sin, but we have to ask this question, fascinating question. What was the sin that these people felt conviction about? Like, look, look in the text. It's not like uh, just a general sin, although surely the forgiveness covered all their sins, but it was a very specific sin that they felt convicted about. It's not like they were feeling convicted necessarily about sexual immorality or breaking Sabbath law or stealing from their neighbor, but they were cut to the heart by one statement. He says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And here's what's stunning to me about that. Like what that means is there's this crowd of assembled people listening to Peter. And he observes in that moment, and I'm, I'm sure he saw faces that he recognized, that the people, some of the people at least, in this crowd were the same people in that crowd that shouted, crucify him. It's stunning to me. Like these are the people complicit in the murder of the Messiah. And he pulls no punches. He says, this is the promised Messiah that we've all been waiting for. And you people crucified him. 
And that's the nature of the conviction of sin. But then he offers them this hope of repent and be baptized. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, gosh, I've been sinning a lot lately. I probably am beyond the grace of God or I've worn out his patience or that sort of thing. Can we just observe for a second? If Jesus is ready to forgive the people who murdered him 50 days later and then pour out his spirit upon them, then there is probably nothing you and I could ever do that would put us outside of the grace of God, right? It doesn't really get much worse than being complicit in the murder of Jesus. If you've never experienced his grace, the other thing I love to observe here is, isn't it astounding how simple Peter makes it? Just turn towards him. That's, that's all he says, just turn towards him. Just in faith, turn towards him. Just trust that he is Lord and Messiah. It's just this inner turning You're, that his death and his resurrection has forgiven all of your sins, just like it did for these people. If we've never done that, like that is how accessible God has made it. It is literally that easy to be right with God and it is unbelievable to me that he has made himself that accessible to us. And at that point, when we turn towards God and in faith we say, I trust that Jesus, your Lord and Messiah and that your death has forgiven all my sins, that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us at that moment and there is nothing we could ever do again to separate ourselves from God. It is just astounding. And if it was true for these people who murdered Jesus, it is true for us. Now, I know he mentions baptism here. Um, and that's worth talking about. I'm not going to get into it too much. He says, repent and be baptized. This baptism thing is important, um, but we believe it is faith in Jesus that saves you, not the act of baptism. In the early church, though, those things typically happen one right after another, very Quickly. And so that's the connection here. Peter gives this altar call. 3,000 people say, I believe. And they turn towards Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwells them in that moment. Then what happens? What do they do? Now you got a 3,000 plus member church. What are they going to do together? This is what they do. The Holy Spirit inspires a unique expression of the kingdom of God. Part three of chapter two, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is the first gathering, the first church service, the first community of faith expression. We've got to remember this. There are two functions uh, as they gather. And there's a difference between function and purpose and form. The functions that we see here are really simple. There's a teaching function and there's a fellowship function. The fellowship takes on additional form when he describes it as eating and prayer and care for the poor. That gives us a little bit more clarity about the nature of that fellowship. But the idea is that the Holy Spirit-inspired gatherings of God's people involve these two components. There's like this spiritual growth discipleship piece. There's the forming of our minds, the shaping of our spirits through Scripture, through teaching, through all the different ways God does that. And then there's this relational piece, the fellowship 
fellowship piece, this lovingly interacting with each other, caring for one another. Now, we would all acknowledge this, right? There are innumerable ways for us to carry out those two functions. Like the form has changed like hundreds of thousands of times through the years, probably maybe millions of times the form has changed and it should change. Part of the genius of Christianity and part of the, the brilliance of the Holy Spirit indwelling people is that those functions can be internalized by each individual person and then uniquely expressed by different cultures, by different generations, by people speaking different languages. And so there's all this creativity to the way the Holy Spirit inspires those things to be lived out. It stays fresh and I would say it has to stay fresh. And I think there's this shift that we see, whereas in the Old Testament, the the worship in the temple, it was very static for a thousand years. This was how they worshiped. Here is a moment where it's like God has broken out of that static worship forever. And what we see over the next 2,000 years is this ongoing emerging of these creative and beautiful ways to express what God has called us to. The human creativity that we see in the church, I would say, honestly, it is a marker of the Holy Spirit's presence, and that's why it's so tragic when we use it as fodder for an argument with one another. You know, when we show up to church, when we participate with other believers, it is absolutely okay to have your preference. It's absolutely okay to say, hey, as the Holy Spirit in me inspires me, this is how I'm drawn to worship. It's okay to even choose your preferred form of gathering. It's not okay to condemn other things that the Holy Spirit has inspired. Like, that's probably pretty dangerous. The problem with worship wars that have happened is inevitably, you cannot have a worship war or an argument about worship without winding up criticizing or dismissing something that the Holy Spirit has inspired and created. And I think that's a dangerous ground to walk on. I try to not do that. Um, I... uh, some people here know this about me. There's a song that we do at this church, um, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. We didn't do it today. I'll tell you that, but I'm not going to tell you what the song is. Um, and everyone likes it. Whenever we do the song, everybody sings real loud, and it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> Pastor Cindy knows this. Um, I just hate it. Um, <laughs> like, just personally, I think it's dumb. I'm not going to tell you why. I just think it's dumb. It's, I'm a jerk. Um, so one time I was talking with Pastor Cindy about this, and she's like, hey, should we just, we'll just pull that song. We've got lots of songs. We'll just pull that song from the rotation. And I, I'm like, like, before God, I felt the Holy Spirit say, no, Jonathan, <laughs> that is not a wise use of the authority that you have. Um, <laughs> and I started thinking about it, and there's probably two reasons why I, like, absolutely not. I said, Cindy, do what the Spirit leads you to do. Uh, one reason is this. It is really good for my heart uh, when we sing that song and I hear you people singing it loud to Jesus because you love him. Um, Because it reminds me of this. I know probably none of you struggle with this, but I struggle with this. I can be a judgmental jerk when it comes to church. I just can. And I know it might be hard for you to relate to that, but for me, I could be a real judgmental jerk when it comes to church. And there are moments when I find myself judging an expression of the Holy Spirit that someone else has embraced. And that's a good moment of conviction 
where God shows me the ugliness of my heart and I have to back away from it and say, Lord, I'm sorry. The, the other reason I didn't pull it from the rotation is, is simply this. The community of faith is not about getting our preferences. And I think that's especially true for people who have the authority and the ability to say, well, let's do it this way, right? It is about forming us and fellowshipping together. That's what the community of faith is about. And when we make it about our preferences, uh, we lose something. And so we need to be open, and I need to be open to what the Spirit is doing in someone else, even if I don't get it. Now, uh, what I don't want you to do is go up to Cindy after church and say, what is the song? Because a few people in the first service did that. Somebody offered her money. She's like, someone, someone, someone said, I'll give you $250. And I'm like, $250? Say yes. <laughs> but it was $2.50. Anyway. Um, I forget what I was saying. Oh, this is it. Yeah. The Holy Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit has never been focused on undoing the differences between us, right? That's our obsession as humans. It's not the Holy Spirit's obsession as humans. The Holy Spirit actually was involved in making us different, right? We're the ones who prefer sameness and prefer everyone to think like we do. The Holy Spirit is focused on bringing Jesus and his kingdom into our differences. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. And that is a very different work than flattening out all of our differences so we look the same. But it starts here with this chapter. Now, we get to apply this in kind of a fun way these next few weeks. I want to mention that, then we'll close. The Holy Spirit, of course, brings us together and then inspires in our midst an expression of God's kingdom. And we have our way of living that out, but there's a lot of different ways to live that out as the people of God. And so these next few weeks, we're going to just pause from Acts. We're going to come back to it, but we're going to pause and we're going to start a series on the kingdom of God. Now, we talk about the kingdom of God a lot at Pulpit Rock. We've never actually done a sermon series on what is it and how do we live in it and how do we become a part of it and see it here in our midst. So we're going to do that for a few weeks. I'm going to start next week and then in the next three weeks, three other pastors from different churches who express the kingdom in very different ways than we do are going to come and they're going to preach to us and I'm going to get to go to their churches and preach. So uh, I, I, I'm up next week. Then after that, Greg Lindsay from Discovery Church is going to come preach. Then Melinda Joy Mingo from Janai Ministries, pastor and author, is, she's going to come and preach. And then Eric Sandris from Sanctuary Church is going to come and preach. And it's okay if you don't know anything about those churches and never heard those names before. Um, here's what you need to know. Uh, those brothers and that sister, they are kingdom-minded to their core. And, uh, and while what they do is different from us, I love how the Holy Spirit is leading them forward to express the kingdom of God. Greg, he's had this idea for a few years. He shopped it around to different pastors. And I, I asked him, I'm like, why doesn't anyone want to do this? Um, and I don't totally know that reason. Maybe there's some intimidation, like, well, if Greg comes and it's the best sermon ever, y'all will all go to his church the next Sunday. Or, um, or I think some of it is this, is sometimes we tend to think that our way is the way. Like we found it. We found Jesus' way of doing church. And so sometimes we can be standoffish to other brothers and sisters who do things very different than us. And so maybe that's part of why people sometimes struggle with this. But I know this. There are some extraordinary churches in this town doing some extraordinary things, putting the kingdom of God first. And we probably, we probably should know them. 
We probably should know something about them and see ourselves as connected to them because surely God sees us as connected to them. You know, this, I've said this before, our job is not to be the best church out there, the one who gets it. That's not our job. That competitive spirit is not the Holy Spirit. Our job is just to be who God created us to be with the resources that he's given us and the abilities that he's given us walking out into his kingdom every single day. That's the job. It's not this competition of best church ever. Um, So we're going to take a break and we're just going to walk into that, talking about the kingdom, seeing it in a few different forms or hearing about it in a few different forms. Uh, we'll, We'll come back to Acts after that. Here's where I want to end though today. Let me close with just one application. And I think like, like if you lived this chapter out, this would be the most astounding and mind-boggling thing ever for us. Like we've known it probably the whole time we've had faith, so it may not be as shocking to us, but it should still impact our hearts. Here's the truth. If you have faith in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit he had. That is staggering. If you have faith in Jesus, then you have the same Holy Spirit he had. What would it look like for us to act like it? What would it look like for us to just live like it? What would it look like if you believed the same spirit that lived in Jesus, that inspired his ministry, that led him in life, actually lived in you in, in the same amount? What would you do? We should do that stuff, you know? Like, would you talk to that spirit who lived in you the way Jesus did? We should do that. Would you expect that spirit to guide you when you had a challenging decision or just uh, a decision at all? Would you take risks for his kingdom without fear because you trusted that spirit would be with you? What would you do? As we close, I just want us to think about that. What is that one thing in our life that maybe would change if in our bones we believed that spirit of God lived in us? Good people, it is the same spirit that lives in you. May we act like it. Lord, we come to you uh, just humbled and thankful. Um, God, we are just so thankful that the old system is done and that you are accessible in a way it's just mind-boggling, Lord. And I, I pray that we as people would learn how to just live in that truth, your accessibility to us. I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, but that we would wake up every day with this awareness that you are living in us and that that matters. Give us courage and give us peace and give us wisdom to walk with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.